Welcome to Work and the Future, a podcast about tomorrow, with your host, Linda Nazareth. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. You know, when we emerge from this pandemic, whether it's this year or next year, whenever it is, we're going to be into a world of work that's not exactly the same as the one we left. At the same time, there's going to be some trends that started pre-pandemic that are going to come back in force. And I think one of those is the idea of portfolio careers. Portfolio careers really means having two careers at the same time, doing two jobs at the same time. Could be because of necessity. You can't make enough at the first one, so you do something else on the side. Maybe you use technology because technology helps you find the work or find an audience. Could be because of choice, because you want to follow a passion and the world we'll have and the world we were starting to have lets you do that because technology gives you the choice. And as well, because companies are maybe a little bit more open to the idea that there are different models of work and they will be willing to accommodate something besides the old kind of linear idea of work, one job and you progress through this one company. Maybe not, but we'll see what happens. It's very much a changing world. Now to talk about portfolio careers today, we have two guests both really interesting, uh, both kind of on different sides of things. Not that they disagree, but they're looking at things from different viewpoints. First, we're going to speak to Scott Snyder. Now, he is with Hydric Consulting. He is uh, head of digital offerings there. As well, he wrote a book called Goliath's Revenge, How Established Companies Turn the Tables on Digital Disruptions. And he talks to us about different scenarios for the future of work, one of which is about having portfolio careers or you know using your talents in different ways and having companies accommodate the fact that different workers are going to want different work styles and it's possible to make that part of your reality then we're going to be talking to somebody who's actually pursuing two careers at the same time you may know his name jackie wong the wall street journal called him the most trusted name in figure skating and he's passionate about the subject he blogs he tweets he has a podcast he really is the voice of figure skating for a lot of people and he also has another full-time complete career as he does that. He's with McKinsey and Company, where he's an engagement manager. And somehow he's managing to pursue both things at the same time. I wonder if he's the wave of the future, whether we'll see a lot more of this. So some really good discussion ahead. Please stay with us. out of this pandemic, what will have changed in terms of the work world and careers? Well, our first guest today thinks we may be in a world where having a portfolio career is much more common than it is right now. Scott Snyder is the leader of the digital offerings at Hydric Consulting. He's also the author of Goliath's Revenge, How Established Companies Turn the Tables on Digital Disruptors. And he's written about the future of work post-pandemic, different scenarios we should be looking at, including the idea that people may be doing several different things at the same time. He joins us now from Philadelphia. Hi, Scott. Hi, happy to be here. Thanks for being here. You know, there's so much to talk about right now. now even pre-pandemic, you were obviously looking at the future of work. It was kind of your big picture view on where it was going if we didn't have this interruption. Yeah, I mean, as, as you'll probably hear from a lot of people, there were already some mega trends underway um, that may have just spiked and been super compressed or accelerated as a result of the pandemic. Uh, we're, there's still a 
a lot of uncertainty, but you know, some of those trends like the the trend towards gig workers, right? Even in the US, we were heading towards about 60 million gig workers of various uh, forms and levels and and that gig type of model moving further upstream into even executive roles. Um, you know, not just for blue collar labor, people think of Uber drivers, but lawyers, uh, CFOs, other things like it. Uh, number two is um, really this notion that um, that talent or skill sets are this evolving, um, you know, kind of composition, right, that has to change on a much quicker basis. So if I acquire a skill in something like design thinking or agile software development or even product management, I need to refresh that skill set, you know, every one to two years now. It's not like I can just keep that, live off that experience for five years because the frameworks change, the models of applying those change, the technologies are changing that fast, right? Uh, so this notion of continually retooling yourself, whether you're a leader or whether you're an entry-level employee, is, is absolutely going to be part of future career paths. And I think this this last piece of, you know, what I'd call hybrid skill sets, where you're marrying this deep institutional knowledge of a certain part of a business or a function or, um, you know, a marketplace um, with new ways of working, new technologies, new digital thinking and I think um, that kind of goes back to this retooling, but it now requires you to become more of a T-shaped person where you understand your specialty area, but you also can marry that with understanding the new ways of working. How do I, if I'm a salesperson, how do I bring that into a virtual world and now sell in a low contact way? If I'm an R&D scientist, how do I think about collaborating and sharing data and doing data science as well as developing molecules? So all those things have now become just more exacerbated by the crisis. For sure. And when we come out of it, I think people are going to be rethinking you know, where they want their careers to go or what their future will look like. When you think about that, do you think it's realistic that people will perhaps pursue more than one career at the same time, keep their hand in a lot of different things? It's interesting. There was definitely that trend moving, um, and and there's so many uncertainties at play right now. Whether it's the economy, the virus, people's attitudes towards interaction or wanting their space or not, um, we still don't know how all this is going to play out. But there's certainly, I think, two. You know, we came up with four scenarios in our future of work um, that that range from you know this kind of low contact, no contact even if we have an economic recovery, all the way to what we call tech power humanity, where people really want to get back to those phys- physical interaction models. They want to live in talent hubs. They want to, you know, they want to marry the best of digital and virtual interactions with the, those physical experiences. Um, we don't know which side of the pendulum we're going to end up in. We do know it's going to be some mix, right? And there are going to be people that choose to and can, because their talent and skill set, work from wherever they want to. So if they don't want to live in a, in a big urban hub anymore or, or be in Silicon Valley as a software developer, or be in Boston as a scientist, they don't have to be, right? They could live in the space they want to from a life balance standpoint. And that's the advantage of having those skill sets and being able to choose and and to your point, may even be able to choose their work engagement model, whether they want to you know, commit to one company as part of their portfolio or they want to actually do several things. 
Um, obviously, on the other side of the, you know, the spectrum is the people that have to work in the front lines, that have to work in physical jobs out of necessity, um, or just because that's that's the skill set they have, and they don't have the opportunity to work virtually. And this is going to be a challenge for companies, right? How do you manage that tension in the workforce? How do you keep your culture together? How do you keep people aligned when it feels a little bit like haves and have-nots? Um, but I think the people that can choose that flexibility will also choose flexibility in their work model. And I think companies, no matter what scenario, will have to become more adept at managing that kind of gig worker at a higher level. The, the worker that wants to engage on their terms uh, in, in their kind of work engagement model, but also be able to feel like you're part of something, far, part of a team uh, connected to the purpose and the mission of the company, which is going to drive what a lot of people do and who they want to work for. So I think it's going to be a mixture. I think you're going to see those employees that crave, that really want the the certainty and don't want to take the risk because the economy's bad. And there's going to be others that because of their skill sets that they built up will have the ability to work and choose to work in a portfolio mode for sure. It's interesting because before this all, all, st all started, I spoke to many companies and I talk a lot about gig work as well. They were having a hard time managing this always because sure. you're used to having your team there and you're used to having that model. How far along do you think companies are in rethinking what this team is? Yeah, I think it goes back to the traditional HR model and talent development model, right? I mean, I grew up in big companies like G and Lockheed and it was, you had your career track, you know, whether you were an engineer or a finance person, you got mentored by your functional manager. They felt some attachment, but also ownership of you, right? So they would train you, but they expected you to work for them for three years. And then you moved on to your next uh, career assignment and you kind of developed in a very linear way. Um, that's no longer the way you need your talent model to be to compete, right? Because opportunities are happening much faster. They're changing much faster. So the best companies are starting to view their talent and their workforce as an internal talent marketplace and also adding external talent to that, where it's really a set of skills and experiences that you could allow to flow to the opportunities as they pop up for the company, right? Whether it's an internal project or a new client opportunity. And companies aren't structured that way. They're not structured where you could say, uh, you know, hey, Joe or Jill, you worked on this project for six months. You've now acquired this experience using analytics or product management, we need you now on this opportunity over here uh, because there's too much friction around moving people out of these lanes or these, these tracks they're in. And so the companies are going to have to rethink their HR models to really allow this talent marketplace driven by analytics to say, you know what, this is the best next opportunity for this person. And it may come at three months, six months, 12 months, but it's not necessarily going to be on this linear track that we were on before. So I think we're probably still a long way from most companies being able to function like a talent marketplace. It's almost going to be like people can run whole businesses on the side because technology means you can have a product and sell it all over the world while you're still full-time as an accountant with a big company. For sure. Are companies going to be comfortable with this model? It, we've always seen people moonlighting a little bit, but it could be a lot more of it. Well, it's actually one of the side effects of what we're in right now, which is this no contact virtualized world 
I think as companies, a lot of companies weren't ready to get used to a virtual working model, whether it was just kind of managing risk with their employees or IT or even employee work policies. They've had to do that, right? They've had to whip themselves into that model very quickly if they weren't in it already. And um, I think that's actually prepared them to be able to better handle gig workers because there are a lot of complexities that they just had to, there's a lot of assumptions they just had to blow up around what it means to onboard and manage a virtual worker. And I think the same thing about a gig worker. I think people used to think gig workers were for very specific tasks, for very defined hours, and they were good for low value added things, but you would never give your most strategic things to a gig worker. And now I think given companies have already made this leap towards this virtual work model, which has its own new set of challenges and frankly, silver linings around the workforce uh, and tapping into a much diver- more diverse set of talent that you know can be in, in different locations. I think uh, the same with gig talent. I think people are going to be more accommodating because they're going to recognize to get the skills they need, they might have to flex their, um, their normal model of what a, a worker is and, and what an employment agreement is. For sure. So you think we're still going to be talking about the war for talent? Because I think we've almost forgotten about that in the midst of, you know, huge recession and shutdown of the economy. I think we are, because I would say even in one of our darkest scenarios, we called it the growing divide, where you have a down economy, this prolonged recession, and this really fractured economy globally, um, you still have to be um, you still have to be good at certain things. You have to be a tech company, no matter what industry you're in. You be, have to be adept at being agile and spinning up new business models, flexing your operating models so that you can divest of certain assets or functions you don't need and work with partners, in your ecosystem more effectively. Those are all skills you're going to need as a company. And a lot of companies don't have those skills. So the people that are good at those are still going to be in high demand for sure. What about from the employee or the worker standpoint? I shouldn't even say employee. Do you advise people to think in terms of being able to do different things and have a a gig on the side? Or do you think it's still okay to be part of the company model? I I think, once again, it's going to come down to personal choice. And um, I think, listen, there are some things, and and you've studied the gig model, obviously, um, there are some fundamental gaps in the gig model in this country, right, in terms of you know, benefits, retirement plans, um, you know, really understanding, um, you know, how to manage your kind of financial health uh, along with your career. Um, Obviously, people at the higher end of the freelance gig workforce tend to not have those issues as much, but they're still there. And I think some people do want the certainty. I think the bigger issue is, will companies start to treat gig workers like part of their culture, like part of the organization because until they do that, um, feeling like, you know, really having them be part of big, high impact projects, big initiatives, and even some of your bigger innovation opportunities um, is going to be a harder leap. But I think the companies that figure out how to do that, I think workers will have lots of choices. I think if you're talented and you've upskilled yourself and you've invested in the right kind of development path of, of your own skill sets, um, and you're you're well networked. You're going to have a choice to work the way you want to work, and I think that's going to be regardless of the way the economy is. Uh, then it's just going to come down to your own personal risk attitude. 
Scott, I've been asking people this question. When you look to the future and the future of work, are you an optimist about the way things are going? Uh, I'm an optimist on some things. I'm an optimist that I think the bar that's been raised um, on companies from a customer engagement standpoint because of the crisis, um, you know, if you're a bank, you better have amazing digital channels right now. If you're a grocery store, you be able to be able to execute online grocery delivery. If you're a hospital system, you better have great telemedicine. And before you could kind of, you know, kind of stumble along and eventually it would take you a couple of years to get there. You can't anymore. The bar, the ratchet is too high. That same bar is being ratcheted up on the employee side. So now that we've turned on this virtual model and all the other, you know, digital tools and ways of working with it, it's raised the expectation of employees of what a work experience is. And it's going to allow employees to dial the dial on virtual versus physical, their own work engagement model the way they want. And I think that's going to be great because some people, let's say you're a data scientist and you want to live in Colorado Springs and you can work for a company in New York four days a week virtually and, and maybe you got to get together with your team one day a week. Awesome. If you're a bench scientist uh, or a salesperson and you've got to collaborate three days a week physically in the office, great. You can choose that model. And I think it's going to be great for workers to marry their work model with life. I think the flip side that I worry about is, once again, the lower end of the job market where, you know, there are now companies because of COVID that are running their factories or running their uh, their industries or production facilities with a third of the workers at the same capacity, right? So that means somehow two thirds of those workers that they thought they were going to have a few years to upskill and displace have now been displaced. And so who's worrying about upskilling those workers so that they have the opportunity to participate in this next wave of, of talent marketplace. And that's what I worry about on the other side. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you. Scott Snyder is the leader of the digital offerings at Hydric Consulting. career at the same time sounds interesting on paper, but how does it play out in real reality? Well, our next guest has been putting theory into practice for a while, apparently quite successfully. Jackie Wong needs to be introduced by his two separate job titles. First, he's an engagement manager with consulting firm McKinsey and Company, and the rest of his time, he is the, the founder, the blogger, the podcaster, the tweeter of Rocker Skating, where he's known as the most trusted name in figure skating. He joins us from New York. Hi, Jackie. Hello. I, I think the word apparently is probably the qualifier that you need for the successfulness of what I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, know enough about the figure skating world that I know you are the most trusted voice or the one everybody listens to. Uh, but I can't quite figure out how it all comes together, how somebody has enough free time from a consulting company job, which we know there is no free time from, to be doing what you do. Can you give us an idea how you got to this place? Um I, I often think about how and where and who and like all, all the questions that I have of, of, you know, basically how rocker skating came about. I mean, I, I started this in my um, previous career. So I was an architect 
for um, about 10 years, uh, uh, you know, um, learning, uh, practicing, teaching, like, um, you know, kind of ranging the gamut there. And it, it kind of started when I was, um, you know, in the last recession, trying to find a new gig to kind of supplement income and um, couldn't find anything. And, and it turned out, uh, you know, this, this uh, publication called examiner.com was uh, looking for people who were experts in fields to write. And, you know, it, it didn't really make me much money, but it was, it was a release um, of creativity for me. So that's kind of where it all got started. Um, but, but uh, you know, it, it, it kind of became rocker skating when I was in business school, as I was transitioning from architecture to consulting. And so that's kind of where it came from. But, um, you know, to your question about how I kind of do what I do, it's, I, I guess, trying to make the most of the 24 hour day and still um, somewhat have a have a semblance of a sleep pattern during the night. So um, yeah, it's it, it, it is a lot of multitasking. It is a lot of finding nooks and crannies during my day in order to um, uh, kind of keep up with stuff and 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 send things out I mean the the beauty of a lot of what I do is you know I am my own boss I don't have an editor that I have to deal with you know I don't I don't have to to uh, uh, kind of work with the quality control bureaucracy that is part of a normal uh, sort of publication so um, that helps me be agile and speedy and um, you know, it, 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 it has its good, goods and its bads, and that's kind of how I do it. Well, we should tell people who maybe are less familiar with figure skating that you basically go to all the major competitions, you watch as much as you possibly can, you tweet constantly, yep. you interview skaters, you put everything up on your website. Do you work with other people to get any of this done? No, that's it's all me. <laughs> <laughs> That's almost impossible. Okay. I, I yeah, I mean, I I uh, I've thought about hiring folks to to help me do what I do, but uh, you know, as it is, it's it's a it's a passion project that um, you know kind of breaks even. In if if you're talking about um, kind of financial models and business models, it's 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 a break even model. It's it's something that helps me um, do what I do. I don't aggressively push for. Um, advertising or, you know, kind of sources of revenue. So um, I, I've always found it to be disingenuous for me to find other people to help me, you know, work for free. And so I don't do it. So you do it, as you say, as a passion pod project for your creative side, basically? Basically, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 um, it's gotten to a point where, you know, it's, it's, Partly that I feel a bit of an obligation to continue doing it, but part uh, a much bigger partly because I love what I do and I love figure skating and I love um, being able to contribute to a sport. So um, that's kind of how why, how or why I continue doing what I do. Now you have a figure skating background yourself, correct? I do. Yes, uh, it's not terribly illustrious. Um, I I have skated. On and off, I still skate. Um, I've, I've skated on and off for about 25 years now um, and, you know, trained and had jumps and those kinds of things. But uh, nothing that you can say that is incredibly impressive. But um, it, 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 it gave me a background of 
technical knowledge and um, you know an understanding about the the inner workings of how how it is to become a figure skater um, that I think really helps me bring a different perspective to the sport than a lot of um, other folks do, uh, especially in the U.S. Um, in in the journalism community. For sure, there's not a whole lot of expertise. I just find it well expertise beyond the people who cover it all the time. Yeah, but you know, I just find it interesting that this was something that you did when you were younger. It was a passion, and you found a way to continue it because there's so many people who skate then they stop skating, or yep. they play piano and then they don't play piano, or whatever. Like, was that something you really decided that you didn't want to give up, or is it something that just kind of happened? It just kind of happened. To be perfectly honest with you, I I kind of fell out of love with figure skating for a few years um you know kind of the post michelle kwan era was <laughs> sort of where where i was like eh, i don't know what i don't know if i'm you know I, I definitely wasn't as obsessed with watching and consuming figure skating as i was when i was younger um par- probably partially because i had started a new career and you know it was like a different phase of my life but um yeah, it was it was a bit of a reinvigoration. I, I do think that the fact that I was never a high level, top level figure skater helps me kind of sustain the passion for it. Um, I, I think there, are, you know, I have I have enough friends who have been uh, part of the figure skating world, you know, fairly deeply for you know, the vast majority of their lives who kind of burn out from it. And when they retire, they kind of want nothing to do with figure skating, at least for a while. And then, you know, um, five, 10 years later, they realize that it it is kind of the love of their life and they want to come back to it in some way. So, um, but the fact that I, I never burned out of figure skating as a skater uh, probably helped me not have that sort of uh you know divorce with the sport okay so you're able to do this and that's awesome but i'm sure lots of people are listening and can't figure out how to make it work because when you have a full-time job and yours is obviously a demanding one it's hard to even you know go to the gym occasionally let alone have a whole other career give us an idea of the logistics of that so the great thing about figure skating for me at least is that a lot of the international competitions happen on Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, Sundays. Um, and I, I think it, it's particularly suited to the consulting lifestyle in the sense that, um, you know, in the pre-COVID era, we uh, are very much used to being on client site Monday through Thursday, um, usually somewhere else uh, in some other city, right? And and then... Um, Thursday afternoon slash evening, you fly home and that's kind of, you kind of compartmentalize your week in that way. And so when I fly home Thursday night, I, I, you know, will take that extra bit of energy and, you know, get on the computer for a, I don't know, 3am start with NHK trophy in Tokyo or something. Right. And, and um, that's kind of, the day probably usually a, a thursday or a friday morning is is the day that uh, my schedule gets pretty ridiculous in terms of um not being able to do much in the realm of sleeping but <laughs> um but you know because it's a thursday friday saturday sunday thing i 
I basically have a seven day work week, if you will. Um, and for me, because it is a passion project, because it is something that I do for myself and not for not, you know, I don't have a boss on it. Um, I don't see it as work, right? So if when I'm awake in the middle of the night, or if I'm waking up super early to catch a competition across the globe, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing it because somebody told me to, I'm doing it because it's just part of what I do in my daily life. And if I, uh, if I weren't a, a figure skating commentator, would I do that? Maybe. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, I think, I think the, the separation of it feeling like work and, um, feeling more like a hobby is something that keeps it, um, sustainable and fresh to me. Um, that said, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's not always the easiest thing for me to, to do. Um, and, and there are some times when I'm like, do I really have to get up and do this? And, you know, those are the times when I kind of listen to my, myself and listen to my, uh, mental state and my physical state and be like, okay, well, I'm just going to say, I'm not going to do that today. Right. Um, but that's kind of few and far between, um, I think the the other the other part is I do like you've said I do travel to competitions quite a bit um and I I try to pick competitions where I can go uh, that I can go to that are um you know, somewhat close or somewhat convenient to what I'm doing so you know last year I I was uh on a client project in London for 3 months and just so happens that um the grand prix final was which is a pretty major competition. The Grand Prix final was in uh, uh, Torino, Italy, and so you know, it. it I, I was perfectly fine staying in London for the weekend and then flying over, basically flying over to Torino for a couple of days to cover the competition and flying back to London. So um, you know, I, I I try to kind of work um, my my figure skating schedule around my my work schedule, um, and the the. The other great thing about consulting, especially these days, is that there is a good bit more uh, uh, kind of uh, understanding of, I don't know, sustainability, work-life balance. And and um, a lot of the big consulting firms now allow you to, um, or I guess, offer flexibility uh, options for you to take sabbaticals um, on a yearly basis. And so I, I take full advantage of it, and I take two months off every year. So um, it, it helps me keep up with my figure skating. It also helps me kind of refresh and re-energize from a, uh, a long, crazy fall slash winter season, which is usually where I um, start feeling a little bit. Tired. Um, you know, you mentioned that you have some flexibility with consulting. I mean, clearly not every day. What do you think people who are thinking of looking for multiple careers, portfolio careers, need from their first employer to make it work? I mean, I, I think part of it is um, understanding what your schedule and cadence are. And um, really, like, I, I, I have been able to, to do a lot of this because my um, employer is kind of... Uh, a, a, offered these flexibility programs or, or allowed for these flexibility programs to happen. Um, and 
you know, I often say that, you know, if I were in a job in industry, I don't know if I would have as much flexibility um, as as I do, right, with 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 what I do in consulting. But I would say it's it's about understanding what you're signing up for and and seeing if it you know really would would work out right and and i think also the more senior you are the more you're able to sort of craft your own schedule a little bit better um because you know you're when you when you're in more senior roles you're not kind of uh always uh dealing with with the the innate production of things and and you've got you've got other people working with you in order to do that and you're kind of the conductor leading the band right and so when you're when you're the conductor it's 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 a it gives you a little bit more flexibility to say okay well i'm going to take my 4 p.m to 8 p.m to do this kind of thing and then i i can kind of come online at 8 8 p.m and 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 uh, wrap things up as everybody else is doing stuff, right? It's all, it's so much about expectation setting. It's so much about um, not trying to make it, not trying to kind of cram it in and make it work. It's 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 really about making it, making sure that other people understand that there are other things that you are doing with your life that um, that uh, that you that you need time for, and that um, push comes to shove, you are going to finish the work that you 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 need to do and and uh, have people trust you on to do that. So is this long term or at some point will you pick one or the other? Oh, I have no idea. I, I have been thinking about this for the past few years as to like basically how sustainable this figure skating stuff is. And I've been doing the I, I've been doing figure skating for longer than I've been doing McKinsey. So <laughs> um, uh, but I guess it's only been the last few years where it's kind of ramped up to, you know, I, I spend probably 20, 25 hours a week on figure skating during the season if not longer so um yeah i i I think for the immediate future it's it's uh it's gonna continue being a dual career um i don't think i will ever probably pick one or the other i probably will you know i i'm guessing figure skating will will continue to be part of my life in some way um for, for the rest of my career. So um, famous last words, but we'll see. Jackie, thanks so much for talking to us today. Of course. Thank you. Jackie Wong is an engagement manager with McKinsey and Company, and he's also the everything behind Rocker Skating. To learn more about work and the future and to see show notes, go to the workandthefuturepodcast.com. You can also contact us at comments at the workandthefuturepodcast.com. The Work in the Future podcast with Linda Nazareth is a relentless economics production.